Beverly's got an idea for future art episode. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> oh. Well, that does kind of tie in, so it, I'll get to that. That is not that far-fetched. Really? Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we um, God, we did the CIA episodes now. I mean, 1995, we... right? When we started. Uh, it feels kind of like that. Yeah. Uh, somebody was talking about how they watched the uh, episode or the first interview and they're like it's only six months ago he's aged a lot and yeah, i'm going well, you know, we've been it's through, been over a year we, oh, it has okay thank you thank you we've been through a lot as a people so maybe we have aged a lot yes it, it is uh quite a good time between air conditioning day jobs and uh all the hell breaking loose everywhere mm -hmm. welcome to the show yeah <laughs> and uh on that note by the way i'm going to start early I noticed the email came in. Somebody bought not one, but two dogs. Wow. They're starting a dog pound, Hunley. Well, that's yeah. what I want is I want everyone to send in pictures of their dogs. And it'd be right. nice to have a pound collage. Pound you know, it'd collage. be sort of like, you know, um, the Spartacus of Oswald. Right. That's not a bad <laughs> idea. But what happened to the bear? That No bear or just dogs? It's never in stock. I would buy a bear as soon as it's in stock. But you know what? They, they knew you liked the name. Yeah, exactly. They knew that there was a portmanteau sure, they coming. Make a, a chia pet bear where you put water on top of it and, it, and the, the sprouts come out like the chia pet at night. It's called the grow bear. That would be really fun. There you go. Yeah. The grow bear rhyming with the bear. Everybody know what the chia pet is? Do they still have that? Or I think so. Okay. I think most people still have that. But I mean, chia. Yeah. Well, you could always do a, a um, mold of our friend David. And you could have the chia hair. Okay. It's something to live for. I think so. I think okay. so. So what do we got today, Hunley? What are we doing? Well, <laughs> somebody wants an FBI episode now. Um, that's, I don't know With if that's it. in our, our structure of a, of a show, but that's something. Uh, I mean, there's deep state, obviously, at the FBI. We've you know, talked yeah, to I mean, about it. You know, we've covered um, the FBI and CIA, but we like to do individual stories. This one, this is a big sprawling story, so it's going to be convoluted. There's nothing we could do about this. All right, well, then let's get going. Who do we start uh, with? Okay, so this, is, again, I'm not an expert on abstract art, so bear with me because there's going to be a lot of weird uh, historical abstract art stuff in here that's not my purview, so we're going to do the best we can. We're going to try to focus on about three guys, but uh, in general, what this is about is after World War II, the uh, we got into an, a cold war, cultural cold war with the Soviets, as most of you are aware. Um, we had different ballet teams. We had, um, you know, an, an, a situation that it was not only cultural and not only militarily a cold war and a propaganda war, but there was also an art war. And that's what this episode is about. It's about the cold war coming through the perspective of the arts. When I say the arts, I, I, I'm not talking about media and film, which we've already covered, Eric. I'm talking mm. about basically painting in this episode. Uh, it, it, it'll There's some tangents to it that'll spin off, but we're not going to get into literature. We've gotten into the media before. We've gotten into the families. But this is about the art world. When I say the art world, I mean the world of painting. It's just so we know what we're talking about here in terms of CIA and the arts. So uh, what these guys were up against in terms of the CIA, we'll get to this. I just want to give you the background on who the players are in this, in this, who came up with this idea. One of the first guys to come up with this was a guy named Frank Wisner. Frank Wisner was second in command to Alan Dulles after OSS, after World War II. And Wisner embedded himself in Romania. Uh, here's a picture of Wisner. He was a naval commander in World War II, Frank Wisner. And he uh, was one of the found, I'm, just so you know who the players are, he's one of the founding fathers of the CIA. Second in command to Dulles. And he went to Romania after the war and buried himself into the royal family and the king of Romania. He was having an affair with her daughter, who I guess was the princess of Romania. 
uh, eventually the communists kicked out the royal family from Romania. And he went to, I think, Turkey again. This is 1949-ish when the CIA is in its infancy, 46 in there, 47. So he is uh, a, the guy, just so you know, who was instrumental in bringing the Nazis into the U.S. under Operation Paperclip. This is the guy. Oh. Everybody talks about it. This guy, Frank Wisner, total alcoholic, brilliant, genius, madman. Bon vivant, knows everyone, uh, has a circle of friends that are all through journalism and literature. Um, he, I think, grew up in Mississippi um, in, this, in, I want to say, uh, near Clarksville, but maybe a neighboring town. But anyway, so he's friends with Phil Graham at the Washington Post. In 1954... Frank Wisner funds Animal Farm, Eric, the, the animated movie of Orwell's. Mm. That mm. is also Frank Wisner. Frank Wisner comes up with something called Operation Mockingbird. He's in charge of Operation Mockingbird. That's the CIA program to control journalists and literary uh, uh, people throughout the world. That's Frank Wisner. Frank Wisner has all the connections throughout the United States in journalism. And he has something like a thousand to fifteen hundred journalists under his tutelage, helped by Phil Graham, who owns a paper called The Washington Post. Phil Graham is also the top CIA media asset uh, in charge of this stuff. Now, Frank Wisner is also in charge of military coup d'etats. He plots out the coup d'etat of Mogadesh in Iran. He plots out the coup d'etat of Arbenz in Guatemala. He plots out the coup d'etat at the very end of his life in Guyana. I don't know if that one came off. But Wisner is the mastermind of the coup d'etats, uh, besides this art world influence that he has. And uh, it doesn't end well for Wisner, but we'll get, we'll get back to that when we get into Wisner. Now, there's a guy named, um, who we covered before, uh, John Jock Whitney. Uh, John Jock Whitney, we had in the last episode, he's the heir to the Whitney fortune. He's the guy that wrote the first editorial saying Oswald was a lone nut. He owned the New York Tribune. Here's Frank, here, here is John Whitney. He also came up uh, with a concept. He was OSS. After the war, he becomes a CIA funding guy because he's a multi-millionaire from the Whitney formula, uh, family. He comes some, up with something. There he is. There's, there he is. He was uh, a big horse race enthusiast, and he founds the Whitney Museum of Art in New York, which is going to come into play in this story. So Jock Whitney comes up with a concept called adventure, adventure capitalism, Eric. And hmm. adventure capitalism gets shortened. Its name eventually becomes venture capital. Oh. That's right. And he funds venture capital under the name Adventure Capitalism. And he comes up with the, his friends from the CIA and various people. He gives them money for their harebrained schemes. One of their harebrained schemes turned out to be frozen orange juice named Minute Maid. Another one turned out to be uh, Memorex uh, audio tape. This was all funded by Whitney under his venture capital schemes. Now, we also have Nelson Rockefeller, who's going to come into play here, because Nelson Rockefeller owns the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which we call MoMA, but he called Mommy, because his yeah. mommy put up the money from MoMA. And here's a picture of Nelson Rockefeller uh, looking at one of the paintings. And in the back, you're going to see abstract art. And that's where this episode is going. We're going to get into abstract art. Uh, I think that might be happy. Yep, Nelson and Happy. Happy is not going to end up so happy because Nelson Rockefeller is going to die on his own desk in Rockefeller Center, a place that I worked, uh, with a woman underneath oh. him who, that's right, who extricates herself and doesn't know what to do because Rockefeller was coming and going at the same time. Oh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> it makes its own sauce. I'm very sorry. So, oh. <laughs> sorry. So Rockefeller <laughs> dies on top of her. Happy's not happy, but nevertheless, she has to call the security at Rockefeller Center, uh, who then delicately notify the authorities. And um, Rockefeller was removed. I think rigor mortis was setting in at that point, and he 
died in the position that he came. So, uh, <laughs> what is it, Flagante Delecto? Right, whatever. right. So, okay. So, Dick, so Rockefeller and MoMA and the Whitney become the base of this movement of abstract art. And what the CIA is up to is they're trying to out Soviet Soviet art. And in 1917, when Lenin and the Bolsheviks took over, they had a type of abstract art. I don't know if you have any of the the early night, not this one per se. There was another one I sent you. Um, that'll work. That'll work. Okay. They had from 1917, um, like in the West, they had an abstract art uh, period. Now, when Stalin comes in, Stalin says, this is really bourgeois. This is elitist. This is bullshit art. And he puts in what's known as Soviet realism. Now, Soviet realism, if you could show a picture of, uh, of Soviet realism, it's basic. Yeah, here's a classic Soviet realism. This is like from the 1930s. It, they're, they're just paintings of individuals. Um, he felt that this was much more uh, uh, representative of the people. And these other paintings, that's him. Yeah, it's another one of Stalin. Um, not all of them were of Stalin. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know. <laughs> these are pretty good examples of Soviet realism. Now, we had our own realism. You know, we had guys, the, 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 the pitchfork with the, the two farmers. You know, we had our own American version of this. It, uh, this is one of their um, realism posters, yeah. Uh, I don't know about the sculpture so much. We're trying to focus on painting today, but it does branch oh. off. It does branch off into sculpture, not as much as the painting thing that we're going to get into. But the reality of it is, we had our own version of realism here, of of American realism. So this uh, idea behind this thing was that we would come up with an abstract art that expressed the individual individuality of American artists, that we didn't have to paint these government-authorized realist paintings that Stalin is depicted in, that we could have the artists be individuals, and that will lead us into just three of them. There are many of them. I wanted to focus on Jackson Pollock, uh, Wilhelm de Kooning, and also Mark Rothko today as three examples of these types of abstract expressionist. And before we show them, let me ex explain this a little bit more. What they, they, they realized that America in the 50s was very conservative. They did not want art that would offend Christian, uh, the Christian conservatives. So the abstract expressionism, because nobody could figure out what the hell it was, would not upset anybody. And that was part of the CIA's motivation. Years later, you would have Karen Finley smearing herself with chocolate. You'd have Maplethorpe uh, having a cross with, with urine on it. Right. That is a rebellion against all of this years later. And that's individual art that is not being paid for. But indirectly, that was also in the National Arts Council, uh, who became very leftist. But what these guys were trying to do was take the art world from Paris and move it to New York. Don't forget, Europe is in shatters and tatters. This is a post-World War II environment, Eric. They're not going to art gallery wine tastings in Paris art galleries. However, there is a guy named Picasso, and Picasso made a thing called Picasso's Doves, which many people know. That's this, the, the sign of peace today. When you see a peace sign with a dove, that was created by Picasso for the Soviets. Picasso was a total communist, and the Soviets loved him, and the Soviets funded Picasso. And he created the piece, the dove thing, which they used in all their um, different conventions that they had. So there's two groups. One is called the Congress for Cultural Freedom. That's our group. That's funded by the CIA. This is created by Frank Wisner and some of the men we're going to get into. This is the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Yeah. And this is a CIA funded operation to bring our arts to the forefront of Western culture and destroy Soviet art, which was represented by the World Peace Council. The World Peace Council is their version of this. And they'd have these doves flying around with uh, Picasso who painted them. And they had their uh, Shostakovich and their Soviet artists 
were dominating. They looked at American art as a bunch of rubes. This is where the CIA said we got to fight back. In the 1930s and 1940s, Soviets dominated the art world. As Just take my word for it on this one with the, the ballet and everything else the Soviets were doing. We did not have an answer for it. This was the equivalent of the space race, but it's the art race. And it's very rarely covered. And I always wanted to do an episode on this art battle between the two cultures. So the creation of this Congress for Cultural Freedom, they met in the Waldorf Astoria in 1949. All these different artists show up. It's a huge event. Everybody's there. Uh, Kessler, uh, you know, all the great writers are there. The painters are there. And what we are trying to back is the non-communist liberal left in the art world. That's what the CIA, they know there's no conservative artist out there. That doesn't exist. So what they're trying to back is the non-communist ones or the ones that have turned their backs on communism and now realize, like Jackson Pollock, who denounced communism, he became the poster boy for this type of movement. Jackson Pollock throwing paint, dripping paint. This is called an action painting. Pollock and, and de Kooning and Rothko invent what's called action painting. Huge canvases, they take it off the easel, they throw paint and substances and resin and all kinds of crap at a canvas. Uh, this is obviously one of the Jackson Pollocks. Um, I think that's number 17A. That's the name of the painting, that, not yeah. the number of, of the thing. That's actually the, the name of the painting. Pollock's a total alcoholic. De Kooning is a total alcoholic. Rothko is a total alcoholic. All of them will die of alcoholism. All of them, I think, were embittered that they were funded secretly through these CIA conduits. Now, keep in mind, these are the original rock stars of America. Before there was rock and roll, there were these guys. Jackson Pollock was Elvis Presley. Yeah, that's an interesting shot right there. These guys were revered and had money and sold their paintings for enormous amounts of money. And part of that was to say to the Soviet artists, you may be painting these paintings for, for, for 10 rubles, but our guys are living in freaking mansions with, with multiple girls drinking wine and, and, and having parties. And that was the intent of the CIA to do this. They tried to handpick the guys they were dealing with and stay away from any real communists. Uh, you know, so the, like I said, they focused on people like Pollock who were had turned their backs on communism, if that makes any sense. Well, it's cultural warfare. That, that, I mean, it's probably a little later, but it led into like Levi's being the most you know, desired thing out of the Soviet Union and things like that. We were selling commercialism back. Right, but this is an abstract art world. This is not a commercial art world. The average American person is not buying a Jackson Pollock painting nor knows what this is about. This is about moving the center of the art world from Paris to New York, which they do. That's why MoMA and the Whitney are created, to have these gallery shows in New York and move it out of Western Europe. Now, they do create uh, magazines like the Paris Review, this is intentional. The Paris Review is, is, is created and funded by the CIA. Paris Review has Norman Mailer writing for it, Kerouac. Everyone writes for the Paris Review. The editor of the Paris Review is a guy named George Plimpton. George Plimpton is in a movie called Paper Lion, where he plays a quarterback for the Detroit Lions momentarily. He gets into emergent journalism. It's kind of like a blue blood version of Hunter Thompson. You know what I mean? Like this guy comes from the blue blood uh, uh, people and Hunter Thompson does the same thing that that Plimpton did where he puts himself in a hockey game. Uh, it's an NHL game. He puts himself into a game with the Detroit Lions, writes a book about it. But Plimpton is the editor for many, many, many years of the Paris Review which is funded uh, by the CIA in Paris. And he is the editor of the Paris Review, and he is a CIA operative, despite what everybody might think. Uh, George Plimpton, who seems to be everywhere, will end up in a kitchen in 1968 on June 5th of the Ambassador Hotel, wrestling the gun out of Sirhan's hand while he's shooting uh, wildly in the kitchen at Robert F. Kennedy. George That's some immersion. 
What's that? <laughs> That's some immersion. Right. I know. Right. So Plimpton is everywhere because he is a member of this exclusive blue blood operation called the CIA. He actually was wrestling Sirhan's gun out of his hand while he was pulling the trigger in an altered state of consciousness. Now, wow. that's right. Wow. I, you, these guys are everywhere. I mean, anyway, so getting back to Whitney, uh, Whitney becomes the ambassador to a country called England. Uh, so he becomes the great U.S. ambassador to Great Britain, and he is considered by the British as our greatest Anglophile. So that's his claim to fame. He but, looks like one. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, he, that's the guy. That's the guy. So anyway, so de Kooning, William de Kooning, who's Dutch, but becomes an American citizen. I don't know if you have a picture of de Kooning here. Uh, another I box. have his art. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, maybe there's a photo of not, but you got the art, so. Um, well, hang on. Mm -hmm. Well, um, nope, just the art. Okay. Well, de Kooning goes to a place called Woodstock, New York in 1928. He sets up the first colony in Woodstock. Uh, where later I will live, uh, along with Michael Lang of the Woodstock concert and the band and Dylan and everybody else. But in 1928, de Kooning sets up an art colony, a painting art colony in Woodstock with writers and painters, and that becomes a historical uh, area of the country. And he goes back to New York and has these gallery shows at the Whitney. And, you know, put it this way, 1949, somebody bought a Jackson Pollock for $1,500, okay? Which is not not that small, right? It's not chump change. Uh, uh, he bought the number five, 1948, it was called. Uh, I don't know if you have a picture of that. It's a narrow, the straight, narrow one, uh, the vertical one that Pollock did. It's, this is interesting. I wanted to show you this. What, what is it called? You know, 1945, what? What's it's the number? It's called no number five, 1948 by Jackson Pollock. It's a vertical string action painting dripping thing that he did um while obviously drinking <laughs> so the one of the other reasons while you look for that one of the other reasons they wanted to do this the cia was these are critic proof you can't tell me if you're a critic that jackson pollock is brilliant or a psychopath these are critique proof and the critics were bought by the cia a lot of the critics said this is complete garbage they didn't buy into this, Eric, and they and they slowly were won over by pressure from guys within the art critic community who were on the CIA payroll, who said this is brilliant. And because they kept saying this is brilliant, eventually the other guys had to fall by the wayside who said this is garbage. Um, anyway, so getting back to Jackson Pollock, this guy buys... Number five, 1948, from Jackson Pollock for $1,500, right? Can only find a little there it is. copy. There it is. There it is. That's it. That's the one. He buys this, and in the upper right-hand corner of that painting, as Pollock is about to ship it to the guy, a big chunk of the painting falls off. Because these are thick paintings with layers and layers of resin and wires and all kinds of, you know, wood and chips and everything you can imagine are in these paintings, right? So this big chunk and the, his assistant, Pollock's assistant goes, oh, dear God, we better call the guy and tell him. And Pollock goes, he's never going to know the difference. And he gets some glue. <laughs> I don't know. There's a famous quote by Pollock. The guy, he says, he'll never know the difference. And he takes a glob of paint and mud and crap and he shoves it back into the corner with this huge chunk of his $1,500 painting, which is an enormous amount of money to pay for an unknown artist back then. You know, in 1949, he smushes it back in there into the corner. So the, the guy gets the painting and the smush falls out in his house. <laughs> and he calls up Pollock, there's Jackson Pollock. He, he calls up, played by Ed Harris brilliantly in the movie Pollock, if you want to see what I'm talking about after the show, take a look at the movie Pollock. I think Ed Harris got nominated for it. Brilliant performance. Um, and he, you know, how he's walking around these canvases that are on the floor of his place in East Hampton, flinging paint, dripping paint, flinging all over the place and dripping and flinging and having sex and drinking. And, you know, that was Jackson Pollock as an action painter. So the CIA depicted him to the Soviets as a Western gunslinger of art. That this no, I swear to God, this was the individualist of as the American artist, a guy facing you know all kinds of elements, using all kinds of 
product to throw into the art. So the guy gets the painting and the chunk falls out and he calls up Pollock and he goes, what gives? And Pollock goes over there and he says, you know what, bro? He says, I'll paint you a whole new painting on top of this. So he takes the painting he just bought for $1,500 and starts throwing crap on top of it. And the whole thing is altered by Pollock in real time right in the guy's house. Okay. The guy goes, the guy who bought it for $1,500 loves this. He just goes, oh, this is unbelievable. You created art in front of me. You're a genius. And now I've got this incredible original Jackson Pollock. And Jackson Pollock's nobody. <laughs> but it's 1949. He's starting to be shown in galleries. Mm-hmm. So you say to yourself, okay, that's not, that's not so crazy. In 2006, David Geffen bought that same painting for $140 million on Lee. The most expensive price ever paid for a piece of art in the history of the world. Um, that's that painting. That is Jackson Pollock, number five, 1948, that had a huge chunk of it fall out of the corner that he then slapped together in the guy's house. So part of the joke, the CIA... Okay, pull to this chat. Who's going to pay for that? $500 million. <laughs> David Geffen. And I think he sold it for even more, David Geffen. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I feel these, like these were very large. Joke. These are very large. Anyway, so the Soviets were bummed out because they're still painting these realistic paintings of Stalin, right? So they're going, oh, Jesus, this is not good. And But they've got Picasso on their team, which is not a bad guy to have because Picasso is doing Guernica. He's doing political art. And Picasso is abstract, but you could look at Picasso and go, okay, that's great. That's great. These guys, you could go either way. You just go, I don't know if it's great or not. But Picasso, you could see that there's a, some work there. So these guys now be, start to be part of this abstract art world. There's uh, the there's Kuhn. Yeah, there's William de Kooning. He's Dutch, uh, becomes an American citizen. Um, again, another rock star. This guy is the Jim Morrison of art in New York. I mean, these guys have mistresses, wives, you know, dinners everywhere every restaurant they're having gallery shows they're in limousines i mean when you're selling paintings for this amount of money this is the beginning of which will lead into the 1960s and rock and roll and the incredible explosion of individualistic music and art having nothing to do with the cia where these guys on their own become rock stars and you can, some people made the argument this laurel canyon argument that they had infiltrated that. I've never really seen evidence other than O'Neill's book on, you know, Manson uh, and that infiltration up in San Francisco. Uh, but you can't deny the talent of these bands on their own, what they did. You know what I mean? That was a creation exploding out of this. Out of this comes Andy Warhol with pop art. Again, having nothing to do with this CIA stuff. And the art world and the musical art world is kind of like the genie they can't get back in the bottle Hunley, is where i was going with this thing the cia created a monster that they couldn't control by doing this they led to jim morrison and jimi hendrix that's what this led to and they couldn't control morrison and hendrix despite whatever crazy theories you might have come up with these guys became um barons they became you know multi-million dollar barons who in, infected the consciousness of 13-year-old kids. This art did not do that. This art was designed for the elites. This was an elite project designed for the Rockefellers, designed for, uh, like I said, the Whitney's, and designed to attack the Soviets. When the t- by the time they got to rock and roll, rock and roll destroyed communism. There was no answer from the Soviets. That they, again, everybody knows this. There was no answer to the Beatles. There was no answer to, to, to the Doors. The Soviets had run out of gas. They could paint. They could do ballet. They could play classical music. They could write novels. They couldn't play rock and roll. And that's what, in my humble opinion, brought down the Soviet Union was rock and roll. But that's, <laughs> that's going to be 10 years or 12 years later. We're now in 1952. And that's going to come. That period's going to come. But right now, we're in the middle of a Cold War. And uh, people like uh, um, uh, Roy Cohen and McCarthy believe that the CIA was infiltrated with communists. They, di- they didn't believe that this program 
was so pure that they were letting on. They believed that this guy's like Tom Braden. We're going to get into Tom Braden in a second. Tom Braden is CIA. Tom Braden is OSS. Tom Braden is second in command. He was the assistant, the personal assistant to Alan Dulles. And Tom Braden, if you have a picture of him, we're going to get into show. Here's Tom Braden. Tom Braden is a man of letters. He's a syndicated columnist. Uh, he is the uh, a, an art guy who comes up with this program. What we're talking about, he creates the Congress for Cultural Freedom. This is the brain trust of Tom Braden. He's the guy who who spearheads this entire program. Now, Braden uh, uh, is a liberal. These were liberals, Eric, who were in the CIA, post-World War II JFK liberals. And, and everything's completely flipped around now where we're coming back to that, where the left and the CIA are in bed together. In 1952, the left and the CIA were in bed together. Eisenhower and Nixon and McCarthy were trying to put a lid on it. I know it sounds crazy, but that's where we were politically in the early and the mid fifties in terms of CIA. <laughs> they went to a guy named Jules Fleischman. Um, they would go to these guys, according to Braden, and Braden has has talked about this. Uh, he wrote an article saying, I want the CIA... Hold on, let me tell you the title of the article. He wrote a famous article, Braden. Um, I'm glad the CIA is immoral. And th th he wrote this article bragging that the CIA needs to exist. Uh, this was in 1967, a number of years later. Yeah, here it is. Uh, we can post these, these later on. He was saying that they have to be this immoral, lying, sack of shit group that goes around the world deposing dictators and installing whoever they want. He, it's, by 1967, the CIA has begun to been, have been outed uh, by articles in Ramparts magazine and other places for funding these phony art projects and funding 20 different magazines that they paid for and funded and put editors in. They created magazines, they created publishing houses one of them, like we know all the time that we deal with currently uh, up in Seattle, um, they created publishing houses. They put their people in place in Random House and other publishing places. There was a guy named uh, Leo Savage who wrote one of the first books on the Kennedy assassination about Oswald being innocent. That book was blocked by Random House and every single CIA publishing entity through Operation Mockingbird in 1964. Just to give you an example, there's a lot of other examples I could give you, but they put these people in place. They put in place a guy, a guy named Frank, and Frank worked at Newsweek. And Frank was a guy uh, who dealt with the CIA at Newsweek. His last name was Frank, Frank Gibney. His son is Alex Gibney. Frank Gibney was the CIA spook at Newsweek. He was an editor there, and he used his CIA powers to uh, shape stories and do stuff. And like his son would later become a documentary filmmaker, Alec Gibney, Alex Gibney would also carry on uh, um, the same tradition as his father. There's Frank Gibney. He wrote a letter to Alan Dulles, uh, I think in 1969, I have a copy of it, uh, begging, begging Dulles to get him out of the CIA Newsweek operation. that He couldn't take it anymore. And Dulles said, I'll talk to you over lunch, um, wrote him a letter back. I have a copy of that, too and tried to dissuade him from quitting Newsweek because he was such a valuable spook asset under Operation Mockingbird, uh, which was also run by Tom Braden, uh, was one, because in 1965, Frank Wisner starts to have a nervous breakdown from his alcoholism. Frank Wisner is sent to a psychiatric... Uh, there's Alex Gibney. Yeah, that's his son. He also gets $2 million funneled through Universal Pictures to do a hatchet job on a person named Julian Assange. Uh, that's what they do. That's what the deep state does. They make documentaries now. That's the art form of today. He, he took $2 million. Universal is just a, a funnel. Uh, Universal of the studios has traditionally been the one that is the conduit of money for CIA projects uh, to people like Alex Gibney uh, making these CIA-type documentaries uh, to this day. So this guy, Tom Braden, he starts running Operation Mockingbird because his friend, his dear friend, Frank Wisner, 
has a complete mental breakdown. Frank Wisner ends up in a psychiatric ward uh, outside of Maryland where they give him something called ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, Hunley, which obviously you worked with you. It didn't work with me. Sometimes it was effective. Sometimes it was not. So Wisner comes out of there. He's super depressed after the uh, electroshock therapy. So they send him to be the CIA chief in London. And he's like a vegetable. And he comes back from London. He says, I, look, I can't do this anymore. He was plotting the uh, coup in Guyana. Um, and, and he comes back and he uh, goes into his room and blows his head off with a shotgun. So that's 1965. In 1963, his, his friend, his best friend, is a guy named Phil Graham. As I was saying, Catherine Graham's husband. Phil Graham was the publisher and owner of the Washington Post. Phil Graham was the advisor and best friend to a guy uh, named Lyndon Baines Johnson. Phil Graham was the one who came up with a, a phrase and a concept, Eric, that you're well aware of called the Great Society. That was Phil Graham. And Lyndon Johnson said, Dag, Namit, what the hell are you talking about? Giving away all that crap. And he said, listen to me, just do what I'm telling you. You'll be president of the United States. Phil Graham was the one that talked LBJ into trying to get his foot into the door for the vice presidency after he lost the nomination in 1960 to JFK. That's Phil Graham. He was here in L.A. at the time. He was here you know, when the whole skullduggery went down of how LBJ got the nomination to be vice president of the United States. That was all uh, Phil Graham. In, in, in 1963, in August, uh, Phil Graham all of a sudden is depressed. Phil Graham is an alcoholic. Phil Graham goes into uh, Chestnut Lodge in Maryland, which is a famous CIA psychiatric institute, uh, not so far from you. Uh, and he has electroshock therapy, uh, just like Joey Ramone and Lou Reed. Uh, two guys who told me what theirs was like. It may have made their music better. I, I mean, Joey Ramone said it did. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about Lou Reed. Well, what was it, the electroshock or the glue sniffing? No, well, Joey said they they both sniff glue. But Joey told me <laughs> that the electroshock therapy led to the Ramones playing super fast, if that makes uh. any sense. And uh, Lou would have bouts of catatonic, bits where he would stare out the window on the West Side Highway for a half an hour. I know that because my cousin Beth ran Sister Ray, his company, for 20 years. So it was just the two of them. So, And he was at my uncle's funeral and stuff like that. But that's a story for another day about Lou Reed, which we could do in America's Untold Story on Lou Reed. That would be nice. He's got a lot of fans out there. And um, anyway, so he had, I think they both went to Creedmoor, which is the uh, psychiatric facility in New York, in Queens, um, and had electroshock therapy. But that being said, Phil Graham gets electroshock therapy. He's an alcoholic. He flies to some convention in the middle of Iowa somewhere and gets up on the podium and says, they're all coming to kill us all, and they're going to kill everybody, and they take him away in a straitjacket. And this was August of 1963. He may have had some foreshadowing of events that were mm. coming within 90 days, and they literally put him into Chestnut Lodge after he flew to this convention in, in Iowa, I think it was, and got up at the podium and started ranting and raving that they're going to kill us all. Um, so Phil Graham gets a weekend pass from the Chestnut Lodge, and he goes home, takes a shotgun, blows his brains out. Uh, not unlike the other guy, Wisner. And apparently all of these CIA veterans it does not end well for any of them no jesus <laughs> good god <clears throat> well let's see what you got on the big board hunley up there let's take a look there's a guy named um i don't know if you've got this guy michael jostleson um 1955 yes, so. he's a cia guy but now he he's another guy yeah, there's Jostelson. Now, the guy on the left is Michael Jostelson. You say, what did he do before he was in the CIA? Well, he was a salesman at uh, Gimbel's across the street. Now, the guy on the right is Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who will become an advisor to JFK and a famous historian. Uh, but I wanted to get into a guy at this point um, who is named Robert. Well, you, first of all, do you have a picture of Mark Rothko? 
um, the artist, the third artist, I just want to let people see what he looked like. He came out of Portland. He was from, I think, um, he was Russian. He was a Russian-American, uh, came to the West Coast. He was another one of the abstract painters, um, just to close out that part of it. But I wanted to get into... Um, and that's his work. Yes, that's a, that's a pretty famous work by him. Um, something by the sea, I forget the name of it. That was uh, huge. Slow Swirl at the Edge of the Sea. Slow Swirl by the Edge of the Sea. That, that probably sold for for 10, 10 to $50 million, a huge painting. I mean, you have to buy a huge house to put these paintings in because some of them, you know, were 75 to 100 feet long. And, you know, that was part of the art form uh, was these oversized paintings. And no one had really done this before. But I want to get into a guy named Robert Fitzpatrick because this is going to tie into some of the other stuff we did in earlier episodes. Robert Fitzpatrick is a guy who is at a there's a picture of him older but there's a younger photo if you could show him because he's at a college named spring hill college about an hour and a half outside of mobile alabama in 1963 in july as a kid uh, he's been a kid he's like 23 uh 22 23 the jesuit college and he is a canadian but somehow he's at this jesuit college in in, in mobile alabama uh where they train cia people to um become cia people and that's uh, called Spring Hill. Now, Spring Hill, as I mentioned before, has a speaker series. They have a speaker series where a guy speaks every week. So uh, the guy speaking that week, they're, they're, it's a beautiful college, absolutely beautiful college, um, huge campus now, still, still functioning very well, small liberal arts college, but it's Jesuits, right? And we all know about the Jesuits and the CIA. So who is running the speaker series? Eugene Moret. Eugene Moret is the first cousin of Lee Harvey Oswald. Eugene Moret comes from New Orleans. His mother is Lillian Moret, and they, his father's Dutch Moret. Uh, they are a spook family, and we're going to do a show just on the Morets. But this Moret, Eugene, goes to college there, and he later will become the legal uh, overlord of Bosnia after the Bosnian War. He'll become the head of the Supreme Court of Bosnia when we implement a taking over their legal system and training them to do our legal system. So at this time in 1963, Eugene Moret invites his first cousin, a lone nut that nobody knows, <laughs> to be the speaker in a speaker series at Spring Hill College about what is life like in the Soviet Union. So who knows about life in the Soviet Union but his first cousin who just came back. His sister will go there very shortly uh, who is a teacher, not unlike an Obama family member, who was his mom, who was a teacher, and went around the world uh, teaching English. So at this time, Lee Harvey Oswald shows up to be the speaker of this series on life in the Soviet Union. Because it's a men's college, his wife, Marina Oswald, if you have a great photo of her, one of the great photos of Marina Oswald, I think I may have sent it to you, uh, how it looks, uh, probably around 1960-61, she has to wait outside. There she is. Now, you tell me this is not... Look at the punim. And I say punim is the Yiddish word for today, Eric. Today's Yiddish word is punim. And punim means face. So today we have the word punim. So anyway, <laughs> so she has to wait outside, Eric, because she can't go in into men's Jesuit college. So a guy comes out to sit with her and talk to her, to be her chaperone as it is. That guy is Robert Fitzpatrick. Robert Fitzpatrick is assigned as the handler of Marina Oswald at Spring Hill College. For hours and hours, they walk around. Robert Fitzpatrick, for reasons that nobody knows, speaks perfect Russian. Because you have to, right. So he becomes a pen pal to Marina Oswald. And they're both fans of Soviet opera, getting back to the arts. And he and her exchange through the mail opera records. But at this time, he's walking around with her on the campus, talking to her about life in the Soviet Union and kind of debriefing her. Uh, Robert Fitzpatrick then goes to Baltimore, Maryland. You can't make this up. And becomes the, the, the professor of French medieval studies when he gets out of when he gets out of Spring Hill College, he goes to Johns Hopkins University, where he becomes the professor of French medieval studies, then becomes the dean of students at Johns Hopkins University. Now, keep in mind, 
he's very young because he becomes the youngest city council member in the history of Baltimore, a place run by Pelosi's family. Her father and the father before him are the mayors of Baltimore. This guy, Robert Fitzpatrick, who is not even an American citizen, becomes the youngest city councilman in the history of Baltimore. You say, well, what do you, it could happen to anybody. <laughs> it could really happen to anybody. He, he then gets involved in such stuff where he becomes, um, 1975, he becomes the president of Cal Arts. There's a picture of him at the Chicago Institute of Arts. That's a couple. Of, that's a number of years later. He goes and becomes the president of Cal Arts uh, here, in LA, here in California. He then becomes, that's the Chicago Institute of Arts. He be, in 1996, he becomes the dean of students at Columbia University. The jobs this guy is getting are not jobs where he's working his way up the ladder. He stays like two years at these jobs and then becomes the head of something else. He leaves that in 1998, becomes the director. I think that's the Chicago photo that you put up, the Chicago Art Institute photo. Contemporary mm -hmm. Art Chicago, 96. In 87, he be, 1987, he becomes the head of something that was a harebrained scheme that had a lot of problems. And that was called Euro Disney. Remember Euro Disney in 1987 when they opened that up? There was a lot. He's experienced. Why shouldn't he be the head of Euro Disney? <laughs> Robert Fitzpatrick becomes the head of Euro Disney. And you go like, dude, this is what they do. This is why I'm demonstrating this. This is what they do with these spooks. They move him around. Here he is. Look at him. Just, he's just a regular guy. That's at the art uh, gallery in Chicago. Um, I think that's 1998, the contemporary art, again with the contemporary art. Um, but here's the point I was trying to make. The bridge, the bridge that I talked about with Jimi Hendrix, the bridge that I talked about with Jim Morrison between the art world and the music art world that electri electrified the earth and blew the Soviets out of the water. This guy has a son, right? And that's his name is Michael Fitzpatrick. And you go, well, who the hell is Michael Fitzpatrick? What does he have to do with this? There's Michael Fitzpatrick. This is the son of Robert Fitzpatrick. Michael Fitzpatrick has a band called Fitz and the Tantrums. And he lives here in Silver Lake, and the band is very successful. And his father, of course, is a spook. And this it allows them to continue to infiltrate behind enemy lines where they could never, ever get. There, there, there's, that's a shot of Fitz and the Tantrums. I, I, most people know who this band is. Uh, they've been around for about 10, 15 years now. Very successful rock soul, rock soul band. Neo soul is what they're called. Uh, they live about a mile from me here at Silver Lake. But he also has another brother who is involved in some uh, art world in New York, uh, in the Hamptons, keeping a finger in that pie. And you, that's the brother. Yeah, I was looking for that photo. What's the brother's first name? Joel. Joel. I forgot about this guy. He's a guy that's into um, high-end linen and fabrics and uh, 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 towels and bedding and everything else and built a company out of thin air uh, where he's the head of this multi, multi-million dollar uh, linen and bedding and towel, I don't know what you call that, uh, type of industry. Textiles, I guess. All right. So the the family thing that we did in the family episode, I, did we cover this family? Yeah. In the, we did. Okay. So we're coming full circle now of the art world of the CIA with the families, with rock coming out of spawning out of uh, the abstract art world. There's another picture of Michael. I actually like the band a lot. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the band, but the reality of it is that this is how we get there, people. This is how we connect these dots, showing you that what you see in front of your face is not necessarily what is really in front of your face. When you look at a Jackson Pollock now, you're going to look at it differently. And you look at a de Kooning, you're going to look at it a little differently. When you hear the music of Fitz and the Tantrums, think about who the father is. So the father who has these kids, he's from originally born in Toronto, all of a sudden tells the whole family at the age of like, I don't know, whatever that age is that he's there, I guess he's like 80, tells him he's been gay his entire life. So we have yet another gay member 
of this velvet mafia involved tangentially in the JFK assassination. Again, I, I you know, I don't know what Robert Fitzpatrick's uh, role was, but he clearly was a handler of Marina Oswald in the summer of 1963 outside of Mobile, Alabama. And like I said, exchanged all kinds of weird correspondence with Marina Oswald. And he was duly rewarded with American citizenship soon after that. This is why I'm mentioning the Baltimore thing. I think by the time he goes to Baltimore, he's he's given American citizenship quickly. And is I mean, he's integrated into the Baltimore city government with Pelosi's uh, uh, grandfather and father. I mean, I, I, I found that to be an odd connection to today's situation that we're involved in uh, with her and, and this linkage back to Baltimore, you know, with his family. Um, so you've got quite a bit of stuff here in terms of CIA and the art world. You know, did we defeat the Soviets with abstract art? Probably not. It was probably a draw, you know, but we were, like I said, we were able to move the center of the earth of the art world from Paris to New York and thereby allowing us to control the funding of all these different front organizations that we created. Um, the Art Students League was created out of thin air. The, these things were created by the CIA. And a lot of the people knew that the money may have been coming from some source, but they didn't know it was the CIA, Eric. Hmm. Well, we had one more piece of art that you haven't covered. <clears throat> this was when I was trying to do a polyurethane type of art where you light it on fire and you then smolder it and move around the ashes and smush it around to make original art. This can be dangerous. This can be dangerous. Please do not try this at home. Always have fire extinguishers, fire, fire extinguishers standing by and try to do this in a warehouse uh, because Burning Man is a real thing. It's not, just, it's not just a rock festival. Burning Man can happen to anyone. Okay, I didn't know if it was, that was Richard Pryor or the Michael Jackson version. <laughs> That's how my hair got like this, folks. It wasn't just uh, I woke up like that. There was some damage done early on. But uh, well worth it in the exploration of the art world, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, these guys, not to knock, you know, Rothko or, or uh, Pollock or even de Kunig. I mean, they were brilliant artists. But the point of the matter is you can't tell if it's brilliant or not. They're telling you it's brilliant which is different than listening to Jimi Hendrix play the Star Spangled Banner. I mean, a, 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 I don't want to, are we allowed to say retard or no? We can't say retard. I, I don't know what terms are, any are allowed. Well, anyway, an idiot can tell you that, you know, listening to this stuff at the age of 13, that this is something special. Whoever your favorite bands were, it doesn't have to be Hendrix, but I'm just saying you can't tell with these guys because this is art propaganda. This is what they created here, is propaganda through art. They would do the same thing through film. They would do the same thing through documentaries. You know, the rock music, the reason it was uncontrollable and they couldn't get that genie back in. We'll use moron. Oh, we use moron. Okay, <laughs> I, I couldn't find the word. You know, I was watching the Three Stooges the other night and it was them as the Nazis and Hitler was, play, Hitler was played by Moe and, and Curly was playing Field Marshal Goering and his name was Field Marshal Herring. And then <laughs> it was just genius. It was 1941. I mean, this was, you know, before we were even, even in the war. And no actor had ever portrayed Hitler. Six months later, uh, Charlie Chaplin would play Hitler in The Great Dictator. But here's mm. Mo Howard, Larry Fine, and Curly doing S Nazi <laughs> Nazis in a film. And I, way ahead of the curve from the nation of Moronica where everyone is a moron, it said on the bottom of the map, <laughs> and they were the heads of Moronica. I mean, I recommend this. There's two Nazi films in 1941 sequels that the Stooges did that I recommend every American should view if you love comedy, because these three short Jews did a send-up of the Nazis that would not be comparable until possibly springtime for Hitler and the producers done by a guy named Max or Mel Kaminsky, his son would be Max, out of Brooklyn, uh, named Mel Brooks. And that would be a send-up within the producers of Springtime for Hitler that was the equivalent of the Stooges episode, in my humble opinion. So uh, that's my, what is it, a white pill tip of the week? I mean, a good news kind of thing in this darkness that we're in right now. So I, I'd say when it gets really dark, 
watch the Stooges, watch Abbott and Costello, uh, because it, you cannot suppress the real laughter that comes out of that. And if you don't like the Stooges and, and Abbott and Costello, you really have to have your head examined at this point in American history, because even in the darkest times, you should be able to laugh at this American comedy, uh, these giants. For sure. Okay. Does that help anybody? I don't know if that helps or hurts. It helps me, Mark. It as long as it me. helps you, Hunley. That's you know, right. We're going to have advertising soon, according to Hunley. Yes, we are. Um, I'm so overjoyed by this. The greatest day in his life. Oh, well, it's pretty cool. Hey, you know what? You, you become a show when you get a sponsor. Mm -hmm. And that's always a nice thing to have. But, you know, for now, I am happy, happy to say that um, two of these just sold earlier. And one person. So we definitely want to have the, uh, the Oswald Pound at some point. I've got several, several super chats. Oh, wow. Let's see what you got. So, Any comments uh, on them? Or? Yeah, yeah. We got um, Scott Cardinal, investigative historian. Also oh, a oh, huge... You didn't know this, did you, Cardinal? He's a huge Lord Buckley fan. Oh, we're going to do Lord Buckley. Don't worry about it, Cardinal. We're going to get to him. Uh, uh, Lady Freddie, I've seen her before. Super sticker. Thank you very much. Um, if you want to do a FBI story, do one on COINTELPRO Sullivan. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Gets killed in a deer hunting accident. <laughs> um, a kid who, who thought he was a deer it does branch off into sculpture boy does it yeah it does no it does absolutely absolutely keep on uh, thank, keep you. It, thank, thank you. you oh it's oh i know that guy uh fascinating oh yeah you were on his show right I, i'm so i was supposed to be on his show and i lost touch i forgot about okay, it okay hold so. on fascinating stuff as always as a detroit lions fan i never thought that particular group would come up and one of the yes uh, yeah that's what plimpton was the quarterback uh, mm -hmm. For the Detroit Lions, paper, paper, uh, paper. He wrote the book too. He wasn't just yes, in the movie. Yes, he wrote the yes, book. I thought. Yeah, yeah, Paper Lion. I think it was Hunter Biden. Another RJ. Okay, I just want to address this because the Chinese are doing the same thing we did. They they have created in the past five years abstract art that ha are now being forced onto us and the world by the Chinese Communist Party. It's exactly the same thing, and Hunter Biden became part of it. Um, recently, very recently, by doing the art he's doing and selling the art at that those prices in the abstract art world. Thank you for reminding me that, because that's where Hunter Biden is connected to this Chinese abstract art world thing that's relatively new. And the Chinese are doing the same thing. They're buying off critics. They're setting up gallery shows and museums and doing the same thing that the CIA did in 1952. Well, they also own um, much of Milan now, the entire fashion world. Uh, China. That's why Italy got hit so hard with uh, COVID to begin with, is because China ah. owns that area. And right. They were all flying the hell out of there, right. landing in Italy, and then it spread from there. I well, guess. nothing's more deceptive than, than abstract art if you want to have a machine in back of you, because... With fashion, you can go, oh, that's gorgeous. That looks great on that five foot eleven beautiful model. You know what I mean? Uh, you can kind of like fudge that. But abstract art, which the Chinese will show it maybe on locals. I'll pull up some Chinese abstract art. Um, you can't tell what this is. You know, the, and that's selling for millions of dollars, as does as did the Biden art recently, which was the same idea. In fact, so Hunter Biden is Jackson Pollock. Here we go. Uh, yeah, we'll read episode. Yeah. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, and Georgina, we well, appreciate you. I mean, the the country's in a depression, Georgina. <laughs> and and we, we, we really appreciate you. So don't even so, worry about that. Thank you very much. Yeah, she doesn't want to know this. You guys uh, are blowing my mind. You like that, Pam, huh? I pulled this out of my ass this episode for you people. Blue toenails. <laughs> Blue toenails, Pam. Well, thank you. Uh, what is behind the sudden investment fan of getting regular people to suddenly invest in owning a piece of fun? Well, we, we, we were just telling you. It, it can only go in one direction. Pollocks don't go down. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? If, if you're on this bandwagon of investment in art, see, they want you to invest in the $1,500 Pollock with a nobody. That's a little yeah. gamble. But, you know, once they're made, you can't really invest in it. You know I mean? They're already $100 million, these paintings. But they're trying to get you to invest in the Hunter Biden of today, whoever that guy is. Well, I know a guy who actually does that. Um, he buys lots. So he, he'll deliberately buy like three or four pieces and they, they get sold together. Right. And then he'll sell off like two or three of them, make up his money. And then he has, has been collecting um, the extra pieces for years and years and years. Okay. And he's got like, like he has Chagall and stuff. So he has legit 
Chagall's oh, really? legit. I mean, a lot of these guys are legit. I mean, Chagall's a genius. These three short Jews. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, what can you say? I mean, Mo, Larry, and Curly. I mean, Shemp, obviously, is Mo's brother, Shemp Howard. So there's four, if you get into it. Martial arts. Chris Casey had a photographic memory and earned his living in Asia selling reinsurance. He was in, I don't know what that means. Um, he allegedly <laughs> ended his own, I don't know who he is, but. Um, yeah, I'm not familiar either. Yeah, I'm not familiar with him, but thank you. Um, uh, oh, great stuff. Now, since you touched it a few times, I knew you were going to do that, Pasha. I mean, he does touch on it, Tom O'Neill, but I, I don't know where that intersects. I don't believe that book, uh, Laurel, the Laurel Canyon thing. That's just crazy. You know, the yeah, there's a Potash. I had him on, and he kind of was like, okay, Lennon was in it, Courtney Love is in it. You know, I just want to talk about how can I buy the dog? Well, you got to talk to Hunley. I mean, Hunley's the dog master. You got to, he's the controller of the dogs. But this, this Griner thing about the uh, WNBA player, Eric, who was in jail in Russia for marijuana, <laughs> it, it kind of reminds me because the Americans are screaming that, you know, we have more liberal um, marijuana laws here. You know, so why should she be in jail in another country? I guess, you know, it's, it's the ultimate. Hey, hey, you know what? It's better Better she's not in Singapore. You think it's well, What I'm saying is, yeah, it, it, it's the second we change our laws, we believe insanely that every single country on the earth should change sure. their laws overnight. I, one of my favorite things was the night after Obama backed gay marriage, every single Obama talking point pundit had to pivot exactly as he did on gay marriage. I mean, somebody should put a montage together of just the people the next day because he changed his view. A hundred pundits all of a sudden woke up and said, of course, <laughs> gay marriage. And that's funnier than anything. But I'll tell you this. There was a time in 1968 where a guy, or 1970 actually, a guy named John Sinclair, an old friend of mine, was arrested for two joints. He was sentenced to 10 years in Michigan uh, for having two joints. And everybody said, screw John Sinclair. John Sinclair was the manager of the MC5. He was a radical leftist. And John Lennon came and toured the United States on this 10 for 2 concert tour. 10 for 2. 10 years for two joints. That was the name of the tour. John Sinclair was a song written by John Lennon. And he got John Sinclair out of prison. And, and this is the United States. So if you're you're pointing a finger at Russia, you know, for keeping this this woman in jail for their own laws, this is what we did to John Sinclair here. John Sinclair eventually lives in Amsterdam now, uh, where he is the one of the judges of obviously the Cannabis Cup. <laughs> but that's a, that's a story. That's for another America's Untold story on John Sinclair, which we'll do. And Sinclair is totally in a great American. Midnight Express, absolutely. Right, of course. Yeah, I mean, please. You know, I mean, countries have different laws. You have to obey them, especially, I mean, the Beatles, when they went to Japan, I mean, the Japanese have the most draconian draw. Every rock and roller knows about Japan. Don't even think of bringing stuff into Japan, even to this day. Wow. So wow. Well, anyway, I wanted to give a shout out to some of these people who helped me. This is one of the books with today's shows, by the way. I really recommend this, um, which is... The Mighty Wurlitzer by U. Wilford. Uh, we'll list a couple of the other books that are important. Um, this came in the mail finally, Hunley. This 800-pound book uh, about General Walker. And, I know. I swear they're everywhere, man. Yeah, it's like, now, uh, yeah but now, I just want to... Kind of like, <laughs> they're growing. I, <laughs> I just wanted to thank some of the people that made it possible, especially on Venmo. Uh, I don't want to give their last names because of the deep state, but Matt, Jeffrey, Ellen... Jana, Barbara, Becky, Heather, Donald, Jordan, Jim, Jenny, Joel, Carlos, Patty, Leon, Edward, Rich. There's all Venmo people who helped with the JFK awesome. book. Yes, I, I really want to thank them because it, there's a lot of books that, that uh, help in the research. Like every episode we do, I usually get two or three or four different books, some on Kindle, so, some I have on my own library. But for the most part, I have to get books to do the episodes and bring you this stuff, which we'll list down below the books. And I just wanted to thank the Venmo people, the PayPal people, 
is too many to mention, but um, it helps with the JFK book fund. I just want to give a shout out to everyone who's helped me on PayPal with the book fund. Thank you so much. It really is helpful, whether it's $5, $2, $10, whatever the hell it is, it'll go to, for instance, just getting the Kindle version of books a couple of days before, because I don't have the time to actually get them through the mail because we have a quick turnaround, Eric and I, on some of these episodes. So I have to go to Kindle and pay for them. And that's where the book fund uh, comes in on both Venmo and PayPal. I just wanted to thank everybody for that. Definitely. Uh, everybody, don't forget um, Locals. Oh, yeah. Yes, right. They're growing like weeds lately. Um, locals awesome. is exploding. seeing everybody in there. And I love seeing everybody posting all the time. It's right. really, really cool. Ton of great stuff. Um, I know somebody's uh, putting in books and things like that. Um, we put up a lot of great PDFs. We put up a lot of documents, and other people are doing the same thing. I mean, I, I have. There's a lot of JFK PDFs up there, books that are out of print. Uh, that the members at locals, which I think is five dollars a month, have access to, and you could download them and print them out. I don't care. My scripts are up there too. I mean, eventually we're going to put up the Oswald scripts, which may end up uh, doing something. I don't want to jinx it. There's some activity right now. I don't want to get involved in that, but I haven't put them up yet because they're still active. The same with the RFK script. There's there's things happening now. Uh, But I have put up a bunch of other scripts, including The Recruit, which was The Farm, uh, with Al Pacino and Colin Farrell, about the CIA, which I recommend you people download and read. Um, It was the one I ended up in federal court in a copyright uh, uh, lawsuit against them. So uh, thank you. Thank you, South. I'll be, oh, I'll be in Dallas on the 15th uh, for a bunch of days. I don't know if we're going to have a meet and a meetup. I, I don't know the itinerary. I'm going next uh, Monday to Dallas, probably till Thursday. I'm on locals. It's like getting gifts every day. Anita. Yeah. Wow. It's great outfit in that little logo box there. Uh, so if I do have an itinerary figured out by Sunday, or Monday, I will let you know on Twitter where you can follow me at Lord Buckley. I kind of went berserk last night on Twitter. I just just went nuts because of this um, uh, raid on Mar-a-Lago. Um, I mean, this is it, folks. I mean, if you don't think they're coming for you, um, just look what happened last night down in Florida. This is, is going to get really gnarly and it's going to get really dark. And we got to get out of this mess somehow before they take the whole shitstorm down with us and blow up this entire operation that uh, our founding fathers created. So support the channel. I mean, there's really, this is the weirdest channel. I didn't know Hunley made me do this. I, I didn't know anything about this. And, you know, we don't have any editing. We don't have any, we do this live. I make mistakes. I'm not an expert. Obviously I could screw up dates and stuff like that. And I try to correct them in the comment section. If, if people point it out, because we're rolling live all the time and we're ju- I'm just riffing for an hour. If we have barns, it could be an hour and a half unless Hunley cuts us off and then we all have to go home. But we will have free form Friday again. Right, Eric? And then maybe the foursome yeah. with Viva. I mean, is that maybe a separate thing? Well, uh, when it ha- when it works, it works. I mean, in fairness, they, they were both out of town. David was his family. I mean, it was just kind of difficult to coordinate everything right right okay so, but, but as far as that goes don't know what's going to happen this friday either do i but That's why um, we need, <laughs> i need the paypal book fund no we need to get going and start planning it out i got a see guy that i've got to go see oh i'm so. the, the busiest guy in america i'm sorry i'll talk to you, I'll talk to you guys on friday sorry <laughs> yeah.